0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. In the world we're living in today, things are being said, they are being printed, they are being broadcast to us that can be confusing, they can be outrageous, they can make us feel more anxious. How do we hear these things and see these things and watch these things without becoming more anxious? That's the subject of today's podcast, discerning truth by reading and watching carefully and in a discerning way. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a look at a big, hairy, ugly word by the name of epistemology. Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know, or uh, kind of the study of, of what makes a belief valid versus not belief. But I prefer the definition of just simple, the study of how we know what we know. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do two things. We're going to close with prayer at the end, written by uh, one of my late friends. But I want to begin by just taking an article that was published recently in the New York Times by Catherine Stewart. And I want us to take a look at some of the the questions that the article raises, and think about how we as Christians can address things. So when you're online and you're seeing people post articles, or you're watching the news, and somebody makes a claim, or somebody shows a clip, or, or somebody um, you know, at, at least speaking for myself, I would prefer to feel anxious about things that actually happened. If I'm going to be anxious, or if somebody is really trying to drum up hype or things of that nature? How do I know when I really should be worried and when I shouldn't be? I think it's a valid question and it's something that is going to take digging because in the world that we're living in, we are very much in a clickbait culture. People do things not so much on just on their own merits, but they're trying to um, support the media industrial complex. By that I mean they're wanting to get clicks and eyeballs because there's financial incentive for them to do so. And when they're wrong, by and large these days, People are wrong so often, the penalty for that, which used to be real disgrace in the eyes of the society, really isn't the case anymore. A periodical or a news network can be wrong over and over and over and over again without any real penalty. But as Christians, we are supposed to stand for what is truthful, what's fair. Uh, We're supposed to practice the fruit of the Spirit in everything that we do. So I'm just going to take this article kind of piece by piece because it makes some claims, and even just the title itself is rather shocking to somebody who's a Christian. But I want to try to practice this as we go through this article. Uh, It's an opinion piece published March 27, 2020 in The New York Times. The headline is this, The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Uh, the subtitle underneath says, Trump's response to the pandemic has been haunted by the science denialism of his ultra-conservative religious allies. The author is a woman by the name of Katherine Stewart, who it says in the article is the author of, I'm sure this is a completely objective book, The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Now at the outset, I want to state a few things so that you know my own perspective. Uh, I don't consider myself to be a part of the religious right. Uh, I certainly don't consider myself to be a part of the religious left either. I in no way consider myself or our church in alignment with the so-called Christian characters and pastors mentioned in the article or the president himself. Uh, Some of the pastors that are mentioned in this article are extremely out there, uh, have been for many years, and I've been critical of them prior to this article, So I'm not aligning myself or my convictions with them. And we have to get out of the business of thinking that just because we point out that something that somebody says about somebody we don't like is false, that that's defending them in some way, shape, or form. Uh, What I try to be in alignment with is truth and fairness in critique. And because I have an odd fascination with the subject of epistemology, which is really just, again, the story of uh, and study of how we know what we know and what distinguishes justified belief from opinion, this piece was like a petri dish. I can sit here and look at this article with great fascination uh, and spend a lot of time with it, uh, checking sources, uh, watching other ancillary video clips and doing other things. Now, I have a daily cornucopia of articles and clips I could pick from, but this one to me is particularly interesting and symptomatic of a larger problem, a if you will, an epistemological one. We are very quickly running out of sources of truth. So let me make a couple of observations, okay? Um, We have very little personal firsthand knowledge of many of the players involved today. We don't know Anthony Fauci. We don't know the president personally. Uh, We don't know the pastors involved in this article personally, at least most of us don't. And so everything we know about them, we have to acknowledge, has been passed on to us through some sort of filter, meaning it came in a newspaper article that was given to us, and that information was curated, and depending on who did it, it could have been spun, taken out of context, put in perfectly great context and is an accurate representation, or it can be thoroughly dishonest in how it's presented. So whether you're seeing it through the lens of a camera or whether you're looking at it in your hands on paper... uh, Unless you're really watching the entire press conference, et cetera, et cetera, you're really left just with headlines and with the article that is written after the fact. Second, to cut Mrs. Stewart some slack here, opinion writers are writing opinions. Uh, it is not designed to be you know, science and in the classic sense of the term. It's designed to express opinions. I recently published one myself, and when you publish an opinion, you invite debate. So I'm interested in an honest dis- debate this morning with Mrs. Stewart. Miss Stewart, I guess. I guess I got her and Martha Stewart uh, mixed up there for just a second my bad. So if I were to put the article's thesis into a couple of sentences, and I want to encourage you to go read the article for yourself, uh, I'm going to try and boil it down for you here, and then I'm going to take it piece by piece and point out some things that I hope will encourage you, because on the surface, the article is, is absolutely terrifying to people if it's taken at face value. Uh, but in my opinion, it should not be. So let's walk through it together. The overall claim of the article is this. Evangelical Christians are generally anti-science. And because the president is surrounded by people of faith in his cabinet, the COVID-19 crisis has been mishandled, and our response has been poorer as a result. And that could have been avoided if we had a different president with a different cabinet comprised of real science people, not scientists of faith. Um, He doesn't have that because of what uh, Ms. Stewart would call Religious nationalism though. She doesn't really define it clearly in the piece she does throw in a few caveats throughout that talk about, uh, you know, not everybody's this way or um, Or whatever but she identifies one relatively obscure southern Presbyterian theologian by the name of Robert Louis Dabney as The chronological root of religious nationalism if you've never heard of Dabney. He's primarily known for being um, at least anti abolitionist if not pro-slavery and so she tries to draw an intellectual route there between Dabney and religious nationalism. Uh, Dabney, just so you know, was not, he wrote very little on science whatsoever. He typically stayed primarily into arguments over um, abolitionism or women's rights and women's suffrage. He didn't really talk much at all about science, but that didn't keep Miss Stewart from seeming, uh, making it seem like he had a real... Um, profound impact on these things. She also goes after somebody in the early paragraphs called the Cornwall Alliance, who I've actually never heard of at all. And I don't know enough about them to endorse or rebuke either way. Um, She basically says they're a good example because they're anti-climate change. And so that proves that they're anti-science, essentially. Um, Now, having said that, if you go to the website, and so I did, there's a link to it in her article. So I just clicked over, and with one more click, uh, the first thing I came to was an open letter to the government. And the first sentence in it was, human-induced climate change, also known as anthropogenic global warming, is real. So I found myself going, how would she say that they are anti-climate change when the first sentence in the first letter on the website says that they believe it's real? Why does she label them climate deniers? Took me two clicks. Anyways, there's great irony in Stewart's clamoring for religious tolerance while writing pieces like this one. The root of it seems to me, just reading through it, is that she is not fond of people who evangelize. Uh, I want to take a couple of paragraphs, read them to you, and then point out a few things as we read. Um, By all accounts, now whenever somebody uses that phrase, okay, by all accounts, usually um, what people mean by that phrase is... Uh, by most accounts, but they use by all accounts. Obviously, it's not all accounts, right? By all accounts, President Trump's tendency to trust his gut over the experts on issues like vaccines and climate change does not come from any deep-seated religious conviction. It's a fairly judgmental statement, but he is perfectly in tune with the religious nationalists who form the core of his base. So the claim is religious nationalists, like the one she describes in the article, form the core of his base, okay? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Let's keep reading. In his daily briefings from the White House, Mr. Trump actively disdains and contradicts the messages coming from his own experts and touts as yet unproven cures. Does he? Does he not? Okay. When you're reading this, let me encourage you again. This is a this is epistemology we're doing here. We're not we're not we're not weighing the mer- political merits of what you're saying. The question is, is it true? Which is different than do I want it to be true? And do I like the president or do I like his cabinet? Okay. The question here is, is it true? So there's a lot of very absolutist language in there. Uh, by all accounts, doesn't come from any deep-seated religious conviction, perfectly in tune with the religious nationalists who form the core of his base, actively disdains and contradicts the messages coming from his own experts and touts as yet unproven cures. Okay, now then she throws in the caveats. Not every pastor is behaving recklessly, of course. Well, that's good to know. Not everyone. In fact, she points out uh, two in the entire uh, article that continued to hold services, for instance. And um, uh, to my knowledge, those are the only two actually in America at this point that did that. So, given that there are tens of thousands of congregations out of there, it's very fair to say that not every pastor is behaving recklessly, of course. And not every churchgoer in these uncertain times is showing up for services out of disregard for scientific evidence. I think that's hopefully a fair statement. She says, then far from it. Yet none of the benign uses of religion in this time of crisis have anything to do with Mr. Trump's expressed hope that the country would be opened up and raring to go by Easter. He could have, of course, said by mid-April but Mr. Trump did not invoke Easter by accident. And many of his evangelical allies were pleased by his vision of packed churches all over the country. Now, she makes it seem like a very—in when, when, the house, she's talking, right? So if I'm a reader and I'm trying to read this article, I'm going, okay, um, I'm glad she threw in the caveats. And then I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, if—you know, she, she makes it seem like going to church on Easter is— an evangelical thing or a marginal thing, uh, the Washington Post said that 50% of people claimed that they attended church there last year. So that's half the country. That's not a very marginal perspective, right? So as far as saying it being open by Easter, I don't know that I would take it as a natural a na- big affront to people or very sectarian to half the country. In what I thought was her strongest part of the article, she writes, Um, By strongest, I mean the part that really made some sense to me. Uh, Religious nationalism has brought to American politics the conviction that our political differences are a battle between absolute evil and absolute good. When you're engaged in a struggle between the party of life, in quotes, and the party of death, in quotes, as some religious nationalists now frame our political divisions, you don't need to worry about crafting careful policy based on expert opinion and analysis. Only a heroic leader free from the scruples of political correctness can save the righteous from the damned. Fealty to the cause is everything. Fidelity to the facts means nothing. Perhaps this is why many Christian nationalist leaders greeted the news of the coronavirus as an insult to their chosen leader. Okay, so her overall point here about the adherence to political ideology over truth is a very, very good one. And I think that that is something that every Christian ought to pay attention to you can get to a point where your political ideology or um, or other convictions that you've got really do become that which you're loyal to rather than the truth itself. I think that's a good point. I think the blind spot here for her is that she assumes that that is something that's unique to Christians. She makes no allowance for the fact that uh, on her side of the political divide, that a person can become blind because of their need to stay. So it's it's kind of like the people who disagree with me are only beholden to their political ideologies and not the facts, but that never happens on the other side of the aisle. The difficulty, of course, is that if one sees things in um, terms of good and evil, uh, you know, this is kind of her perspective. I think she sees that if you see things in terms of good and evil, you can't comprehend or advocate for the truth. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. So these are the things that if you just take an article line by line and look at the truth claims in the article, uh, it would lead you to believe, first of all, that, that Christian nationalism is very widespread. It really is not. And again, she doesn't define it particularly clearly. I know she's written a book on the subject, and I trust that she probably has defined it well in those books. But the examples of the Christians that she pulls from in the article are a who's who of the extreme. In fact, without the New York Times and the Washington Post to mention their names, I'm not sure I would even know who they were. Keep in mind, I've served in mega churches myself back when there were not very many of them. And I've been out there on, in ministry for quite a while. I've been in ministry almost 25 years and spent a very, very long time in college and have a master's degree with an emphasis in church history. And I've never heard of the people that she mentions except for in the mainstream media. So I don't know how significant they are. She attacks two people within the cabinet as symptomatic of the problem. Now, I want to just, the only reason, again, I'm not doing this because I could easily pull something out from the other side of the aisle, okay? I'm choosing this article as symptomatic of a deeper problem, which is to caricature people and beliefs and make absolute claims about what is fact and what is not. So this is where I really want to emphasize is this point right here. She attacks two people in the cabinet as symptomatic of the problem. She begins with secretary of health and human services, Alex Azar. Okay. Now here's what she writes. Mr. Alex Azar, a quote unquote, cabinet sponsor of capital ministries, the Bible study group attended by multiple members of Mr. Trump's cabinet, brought with him to health and human services an immovable conviction in the righteousness of the pharmaceutical industry presumably formed during his five-year stint as an executive and lobbyist in the business. Well, he was, he was president of Eli Lilly, is what he was. Uh, a willingness to speak in the most servile way about the courage, quote-unquote, and openness to change of Mr. Trump, and a commitment to anti-abortion politics, abstinence, education, and other causes of the religious right. What he did not bring, evidently, was any notable ability to manage a pandemic, Who would have guessed that a man skilled at praising Mr. Trump would not be the top choice for organizing the development of a virus testing program, the delivery of urgently needed protective gear to healthcare workers, or a plan for augmenting hospital capabilities. Okay. So what she's saying there, if I'm going to boil it down, is this guy knows nothing. He's a big time lobbyist. And the only reason he's in that role is because he has a particular, he likes to just sit there and pet the president's ego. But he brings zero qualifications to the office. Okay. Well, okay. So if you're reading the article and you're not looking at it with a okay, how do I know what she's saying? Okay. First of all, what she mentions that seems to be the source of contention is him having a commitment to anti-abortion politics, abstinence education, and other causes of the religious right. She says what he didn't bring was any notable ability to manage a pandemic. Now the funny part is uh, his success, his uh, his predecessor, uh, Mr. Thompson, said that when the Health and Human Services Department was in the eye of the storm after the 2001 terror attacks, Azar had an important role in responding to the the health challenges that came after the fact as well as the subsequent anthrax attacks, making sure that there was a vaccine ready for smallpox dealing with the outbreaks of SARS and influenza. Okay, So back when he was a deputy in the Health and Human Services Department, His boss said he was absolutely instrumental in the SARS outbreak and the flu epidemics, making sure there was a vaccine ready for smallpox and the health challenges that came in the aftermath of 9-11. He's also led Eli Lilly, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. So he would theoretically have a good sense of how to get medicines, supplies, etc., where they need to go. So again, his previous boss said he knows the job and he knows how to get the job done. So let me go back and suggest to you that what um, Ms. Stewart is, is saying is, is fundamentally untrue, that he has zero. It sounds actually like he's eminently qualified when you sit and look at it. The one that really bothered me and probably triggered this entire podcast was this one, it, when she took it upon herself to critique Ben Carson's actual medical capacity. So she writes this, Or consider Ben Carson, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and another cabinet sponsor of Capital Ministries. Okay, so she's bringing up that, the fact that he's involved with Capital Ministries, just as she did Mr. Azar. As a former pediatric pediatric neurosurgeon, Mr. Carson brought more knowledge about medicine to his post than knowledge about housing issues, but that medical knowledge didn't stop him from asserting on March 8th that for the healthy individual thinking of attending one of Mr. Trump's then ongoing large-scale campaign rallies, there's really no reason you shouldn't go. Okay, so in there is a link in the article if you're reading it online. You can click over and see where that quote came from. Now, when you click over, it's to an interview, on the George Stephanopoulos show, and when you read the entire manuscript, he's on there not just by himself. Uh, he is on there with other physicians at the same time who have no quarrel with what he said. He said he said that the elderly and those with conditions that might weaken their immune system should be very careful. But really, uh, th- here's what bothers me: that no, it's hard for me to see how any intellectually honest human being would question his medical acumen. I think people who aren't familiar with Ben Carson, they may just see him as the way he's been portrayed in the last two years or so. But when you're looking at Ben Carson, you're looking at a person of profound faith for sure. But he is one of the most accomplished physicians in the history of our country. He was born in Detroit, graduated from Yale, then went to University of Michigan Medical School, uh, authored a number of books, he was, uh, he's was. he been portrayed in movies. He was the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University from 1984 until he retired in 2013. He was a pioneer in neurosurgery. He, his achievements include performing the only successful separation of conjoined twins joined at the back of the head, performing the first successful neurosurgical procedure on a fetus inside the womb. Performing the first completely successful separation of type 2 vertical craniopagus twins, developing new methods to treat brainstem tumors, and revitalizing uh, hemispherectomy techniques for controlling seizures. He was the youngest chief of pediatric neurosurgery in the country at, at the age of 33. He's received more than 60 honorary doctoral degrees, numerous national merit citations, written over 100 neurosurgical publications. In 2001, he was named by CNN and Time as one of the nation's 24 most physicians and scientists and was selected by the Library of Congress as one of 89 living legends on its 200th anniversary. 2008, he was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States. 2010, he was elected into the National Academy of Medicine and he retired from. Johns Hopkins School of Medicine um, just a few years ago. So I think people can question his faith. But when you start questioning the man's medical acumen because he seems to be involved in um, political causes that you don't like, then I think you're getting to the point of being ridiculous. And this is where we get to epistemology again. How do we know what we know? It's going to be important for every reader of every article, unfortunately, to do their own research, because the articles that are being written these days aren't researched well on their own. Even if one is disinclined to show any affection for Ben Carson, almost everybody today has at least a moderate level of respect for Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci, of course, it's hard to not know who he is. He's going to be well-known indefinitely. He'll be in all the history books, and most people seem to think that he's a fairly uh, temperate person. Uh, a man of at least some intellect, not a bumbling buffoon. And yet, Dr. Anthony Fauci was educated as a Catholic. So let me explain what I'm saying here. What I'm suggesting to you is that Christians are not anti-science. That for the most part, it would be fair to say that Christians actually are at the forefront of much of science, particularly healthcare. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Fauci. Not a lot of people know much about his religious side. Uh, He certainly doesn't flaunt it, and I don't know that I would call him a a very public Christian, but he was certainly raised that way. And he attributes his academic pursuits and his success academically to the education he got among the Jesuits. He and his sister Denise were educated first by the Sisters of St. Dominic at Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic School. Um, then Dr. Fauci, you know, there's a little bit about him, uh, playing basketball, good stuff. Um, and it says that he went to, uh, Regis an all scholarship, all boys Jesuit high school in Manhattan. Then he attended Holy Cross college in Worcester, Massachusetts, also Jesuit school, where he was a pre-med student. So while he was at Regis, he studied four years of Latin, three of Greek, two of French. And he recalls, this is a direct quote. The Jesuits and lay teachers taught us how to formulate our thoughts. The phrase I still use is precision of thought and economy of expression. Get your thoughts in order and express them succinctly so people know what you're talking about. Absolutely critical to my formative years. He adds, There was a certain spirit of scholarship at Holy Cross. That was not matched in anything I'd experienced, the idea of seriousness of purpose. I don't mean nerdish seriousness. I mean the importance of personal development, scholarly development, and the high standards of integrity and principles that became part of everyday life at Holy Cross. And that, I think, was passed down from the Jesuits and from the lay faculty to the students. So get that. Make sure you're understanding what he's saying. He credits much of his scholarly development to his, get this, drum roll please, religious education. Religious education. He doesn't see religion as hostile to education. He sees it as something that helps shape an elite education. Religion is not something that you have to get away from. It helps guide you toward the truth. Our quest is to search as diligently as we can for the truth. Not our truth, the truth, regardless of what it may be. And then our job is to handle that truth with the wisdom of Solomon, if God grants it in the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. The fact of the matter is that people of faith dominate science. Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, Kepler, Isaac Newton, or in today's world, Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, and yes, even that dullard, Ben Carson. It is empirically demonstrable that Christians, and even more so people of faith in general, are not anti-science, but in many cases are leaders in the field. And it's also true that many, not all, But many in the secular media despise Christians and write articles like that one. So right now at this very hour, there is a field hospital that has been erected in Central Park. Now, if you read the New York Times, uh, the same paper that the article I just talked through uh, read, you will see a nondescript picture, and it simply says a field hospital is growing in Central Park with this little uh, ditty underneath it. It was a jarring scene, a giant field hospital rising in the middle of one of New York City's most iconic spots. They're talking about Central Park there. But the coronavirus has upended life in New York City in many ways, and now Central Park has been chosen as a location for one of several temporary hospitals being erected to help hospitals inundated with coronavirus patients. So that's how The New York Times covers that field hospital, which is being put there in Central Park by Samaritan's Purse, a Christian philanthropic organization run by Franklin Graham. But you're not going to read that in the New York Times. You're going to read about Rodney Howard Brown and a bunch of other very strange characters as though they are characteristic of Christians. And meanwhile, at this very hour, while Miss Stewart and other people at the New York Times could probably peer out their window and see the field hospital erected by Samaritan's Purse, they say nothing of it. Now, look, I can make anybody look terrible that I want to, including Catherine Stewart. I watched an interview with her. It was an hour long. She seemed very uh, level-headed to me. She seemed very gracious to me, actually, on the camera and very intelligent to me. But for me to represent her in any such way, uh, to make her look unduly poor or someone uh, who maybe... Uh, was some sort of dullard herself would be a mistake. She strikes me as a highly intelligent yet misguided person. She writes this, If our democracy is to function effectively, we need to recognize that even though we may hold differences of opinion, we share a common humanity. And demonizing one's opponents has been proved to be dangerous around the world. Our pluralist country has avoided the most toxic forms of religious division. And I agree with her there. And I would encourage her to embrace her own ideals. Now, for us Christians, we can't allow what we see going on in the world today to chase our vision of tomorrow. We need to have a vision for what God is already doing around the world and witness to it where we can. Christians often will just send and retweet whatever the secular media says about the church without even thinking about its accuracy or what they are saying with that tweet or that share. The largest healthcare provider in the world are the followers of Jesus. The Catholic Church alone manages 26% of the world's healthcare facilities, let alone all of the other medical mission efforts. My two oldest daughters were born at Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, and um, some of you are familiar with St. Jude. Um, That is not because they are Beatles fans. That is after St. Jude. The Ebola virus doctor, Kent Brantley, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, a devout Christian. Uh, The contributions that Christians have made to education, despite what is portrayed in that editorial, that the Christians are almost anti-science and anti-education. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, all of them started by Christians as Bible-believing schools at the time. Harvard was started by a pastor to train clergy initially. Internationally, it's the same thing. Oxford... Cambridge, you guessed it, started by Christians. Here in California, we could talk about USC. We could talk about Pepperdine. We could talk about others. What about orphan care? Uh, Christians lead the way there. What percentage of children's homes do you think are founded, funded, and sustained by Christians? How about charitable giving? Christians give roughly double the amount of money to charity that others do. Christians are overwhelmingly the first and most persistent of groups who work in disaster relief. How about homelessness? Yep. How about care for the elderly? Absolutely. Blood drives? Yep. That too. Now, we could go on and on. Uh, My point overall is to simply say that God's people do an exceptional amount of good work. And so we should not allow um, articles like the one I just cited to wash over us without any critical thinking on our part. And we can't let our today take away our tomorrow, our hope for tomorrow. Lastly, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. He's a late friend. He's not with us anymore. His name was Ray Harden. I think every pastor in every church has somebody that they look to for, oh, that's the pastor to the pastor. They're the people you can depend on and lean on when you're going through your own difficult times. Ray was that for me uh, many years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He wrote a book of prayers, Uh, He had been a former preacher, experienced divorce, and left the ministry at one point in his life, and became a realtor, but um, had a great deal of success in that world, and but never lost his heart for ministry, and particularly his heart for pastors. So he would always come check on me. He had this wonderful resonant baritone voice, and the greatest smoker's cough uh, and laugh you can imagine. So whenever he and I would would talk, we would laugh a ton, and I have I can just hear his laugh in my mind. He wrote a book of prayers, and I asked him to write on numerous occasions a prayer for the church. And he would come up to the microphone and read it in that beautiful voice that he had, but he would write the most wonderful prayers that were very poetic, uh, they were written with just great everything, just the meter, the the, the, the precise selection of words. Uh, He finally took some of those prayers, put them together in a book of prayers called Be Our Strength. It's now uh, out of print, but I wanted to read one for you. The title of the prayer is Be Our Strength, and I'll leave you with this today. Here's what he writes. We'll let this be our closing prayer. We need you, Lord, more than we think we do. For too often we say we seek your face We say we need your strength. We say we honor your name, but it is so very difficult for us to stop trusting ourselves. Even when we acknowledge that our vision is limited, our endurance slight, our perspective biased, we are loath to turn loose the reins of our lives and depend on you. Help us today, Lord to let go, to admit our weakness and to glory in your power. And give us, Lord, the words and thoughts to thank you for being our caregiver through all the seasons of our lives when we believed we were in control. And all God's people said, amen.